Well, good morning. It's great to see you in worship this morning. Uh, last week, we began this series called Communicate the Gospel. And uh, what we're doing in this series is uh, sort of unpacking our third C. It's the third C of our purpose statement as a church, which should be on the screen up here in just a sec. Our logo shows these three C's. It's on the front of our bulletin. It's on our website. Uh, you'll see it increasingly emblazoned on things all over creation. The third C is communicate the gospel here. And these are our stated purpose for our existence as a congregation. And we verbalize them a particular way on purpose. Uh, we, we verbalize them as a process uh, because we want to be clear about how we make disciples here at First Christian Church. We state our big picture reason for existence as a process so that we can clearly and simply uh, communicate how we make disciples who go through this process and whose lives embody this process. Because the 3C life is not just about a program at church. It's about fitting participation for us in the kingdom of God. That's what the 3C life is about. And our third C that we're focusing on for these few weeks, communicate the gospel in word and in deed, is about all of the ways that we minister and serve and communicate the gospel. It's, it's the ways we communicate the truth of the life that God has given us and all of our resources that that includes. Everything. All of our words and our deeds. And it flows, if you'll notice, right from our second C of cultivating growth in this way. Our internal development of growth as the body of Christ empowers us and equips us to be people whose lives communicate the gospel. And so that's kind of how some of that process works. Um, yeah, there you go. There's my spiel about the three C's. Let's move on. We're going to get into uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, we're focusing on a few chapters in 2 Corinthians for these few weeks, uh, mostly chapters 3 through 6. Um, if you want a context, an overview for what we're doing, it would be a good idea to go home and, uh, and to read that. And I want to point out that we have a memory verse for this series. A lot of times in our series, we like to pick um, a few verses that sort of encapsulates the main ideas of our sermon series. And for us this time, it's uh, in your bulletin there at the top under sermon notes. It's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. And uh, in the past, we've gone through that during the sermon time, um, but I only have, let's see, 26 minutes left. So... Um, I'm going to uh, forego that and uh, ask you to, to work on that yourself at home. Write it on a 3 by 5 card. Put it in your car. Uh, put it on your bathroom mirror. Uh, we're on verse 19 this week, and that's listed in your bulletin there. So if you, you work on that one verse at a time, uh, if you're particularly bored during the sermon, you can you know, memorize Scripture uh, during the sermon, so that by the end of our four weeks, you will have this in your head and in your heart, hopefully, as well as we go through this series. So let's go ahead and pray before we dive in here. Lord, we ask for your leading today, for your spirit. You told us you'd leave us your spirit as a comforter, as a teacher, as a counselor, an instructor. 
your presence is among us, Lord, because you've promised it. And so we claim that you have brought us here for the purpose of your goals and kingdom, the purpose of your agenda for our lives. And so we submit ourselves to that, and we submit ourselves in that process to your word, your written and spoken word, which tells us who we are and instructs us about our identity as people. And we ask that we would learn in that vein this morning as we open up your word. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, last week, in our first of four weeks, we talked about uh, defining the gospel. This week, we want to talk about defending the gospel. In the next couple weeks, we'll talk about uh, demonstrating and then declaring the gospel. And uh, those last two weeks particularly fit with our third C statement, which is to communicate, to communicate the gospel in word and in deed. And we'll talk about demonstrating and declaring the gospel in those kinds of ways the next couple weeks. But this week, we talk about what it means to defend the gospel, uh, defending the gospel. And, and as soon as I use that kind of phrase, defending the gospel, I'm sure that many of you, like me, have sort of a knee-jerk kind of response. Saying that kind of phrase instantly conjures up a whole bunch of thoughts and feelings uh, from Christians. For example, when you say defend the gospel, you, you think and, and you say these kinds of things to yourself. I, I don't know how to defend the gospel. That sounds to me terribly intimidating. I wouldn't know what to say if you were depending on me to defend the gospel. I'm not very good with those words, things, stuff like that. We, we say those kinds of things to ourselves. I, I want to leave that up to the experts. Defending the gospel sounds like the most intimidating, difficult kind of thing. And I'm going to leave that to the seminary-trained preacher who can use those big words. Um, that's one of the kinds of responses we often have to defending the gospel. We also think to ourselves uh, something like this, especially. Defending the gospel is finally this kind of thing where, where Scott's going to give me some intellectual tools, some intellectual tools to defeat my atheist friends who think that I'm an absolute buffoon for following Jesus. That's the other kind of thing we often think when we hear what it means to defend the gospel. Well, let me just go ahead and disappoint you at the beginning. In the first few minutes of our sermon today, um, you are not going to hear from me five foolproof arguments for the truth of the gospel that can defeat the intellectual pride of the staunchest atheist. Uh, that will not be our goal today. Uh, and I'm not sure, by the way, that that will effectively do much to bring people to the gospel. Um, here is one of the most important parts of today's message uh, that I want you to bear in mind. Uh, I can't tell you uh, exactly what the story of God's work in your life looks like. That's, in a sense, your job, not mine. I, I'd love to help with that. Uh, if you want to discuss that, I'd love to talk about what that looks like specifically. But today, we want to help give you a gospel framework to help you write and tell and think through the story of God's work in your life. 
Because that's something for us as believers that we have got to discover for ourselves. You need your own vocabulary for how God works in your life. So that you can tell that story in a way that isn't me imposing fancy theological terms on you, for example. You need to be thinking about the ways in which God's story of the work of the gospel in your life has given you a way of speaking about you and your life and identifying with that. You need your own gospel vocabulary for your life. Today is about framing your personal story of reconciliation. We talked about that word uh, last week. It's about framing your personal story of reconciliation in terms that keep the gospel intact. If you're taking notes, that'd be a good one to write down on the sermon notes there. Today is about framing my personal story of reconciliation in terms that keep the gospel message we talked about intact. Which is why today we are going to follow the example of Paul. We're going to follow the example of Paul in 2 Corinthians in his defense of his own ministry, in his defense of the gospel. And the example of Paul is for us a model of our defense of the gospel. And it teaches us, this is the first blank in your outline there, in your sermon notes, the first blank in your outline is that the best defense of the gospel is a life of brokenness. It's a life of brokenness that humbly commends unbelievers to be reconciled to God on God's terms and not ours or theirs. There's a lot behind all that, but we'll particularly talk about that brokenness thing today. The best defense of the gospel is a life of brokenness. And that's different than we initially think about what it means to defend the gospel. We're looking for somebody to tell me how I can absolutely absolutely defeat anybody who comes to me with any argument about a God God doesn't exist. I mean, come on. You can't really believe all that silliness, can you? I mean, and they put us in this emotional space where we feel like we have got to have exactly the right answer. We have got to have the right words for our defense of the gospel. But what we learn today, mercifully, is that that's not exactly how the gospel works. That's not how communication of the gospel works. And the beginning of this principle is one of the verses we read last week. If you've got your Bibles open, look at 2 Corinthians, the third chapter. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. Uh, Turn there for just a second. Paul speaks there about confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Through Christ toward God. That's verse 4 there. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. God. In other words, our confidence before God, it comes through Christ as our high priest. Those of you who are with us for 17 weeks in Hebrews, remember that. We talked about how Christ has established for us in a way that no one else could, including ourselves, a confidence to have reconciliatory relationship with God. So our confidence to claim something, and this is how it meets with the gospel, our confidence to claim something as audacious and ridiculous sounding as freedom from sin comes from somewhere outside of ourselves. It comes from somewhere outside of us. 
Freedom from sin's grip comes only from Christ's work on our behalf to defeat the power of sin. So it means, look at verse 5 there, it means we are not sufficient in ourselves. This is 2 Corinthians 3, 5. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. One of the central joys, friends, one of the central joys of the Christian life is continually unpacking the wonders of the truth that the power of sin is only capably defeated by Jesus and not by us. Our sufficiency is from God. Now, the question is, how does this help us as ministers of the new covenant, as he says there in uh, verse uh, 6 of that passage? How does this help us as ministers of reconciliation like we talked about last week? We'll unpack this in just a second here, but it helps us because we cannot defend grace that comes from outside ourselves. There's a sense in which if you've experienced true and abiding grace in your life, then you know that it is truly a God thing and not a human thing. In a real sense, this truth that Christ accomplishes salvation on our behalf removes the burden of proof from us. That doesn't mean our behavior and our outward witness uh, do not matter. It doesn't mean we can go out into the world and, and act like jerks. I've seen some Christians do that, and I want to uh, you know, beat them up. But it, it means, it does mean that defending the gospel doesn't mean we have to have all the right answers. We don't have to justify everything about ourselves. You see, when we do that, we locate the gospel in our own terms. As if someone else's coming to faith is looking like me. That's not how the gospel works. You see, our fitness, our, our, our fitness to make the crazy claim that other people should be reconciled to God is not located in our own goodness. Do not miss this. Our fitness to make the audacious claim that unbelievers should get right with God came from Christ's claims. The burden of proof is on Christ's sinless life and not our ability to live up to that perfection. And that is a freeing truth that allows us to communicate the gospel with confidence, knowing it's not all about whether or not you have the right answers. That's a losing battle. I've read so many books to tell you that. Any of you have gone there. That's a losing battle. The best thing we can do is demonstrate through our brokenness, through the the pain we've experienced through the suffering of our lives in ways that helps us to demonstrate the gospel and to declare it and to show it with our lives through God's story of the gospel in us. Let's unpack that. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3. We've already been in 3 there. We're going to go to the first three verses in uh, chapter 3 here. And before we unpack this specifically, I want to tell us a little bit about this book of 2 Corinthians, and this is your next blank there. Um, there are lots of complicated things going on in this book of 2 Corinthians. But for us, uh, the purpose of Paul's writing, Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to counter his opponents who claim to be believers, 
who argued that he suffered too much to be a spirit-filled apostle. This is some of the context for what we're reading about here. In other words, these opponents of Paul's were saying, if the gospel that you preach, Paul, is real, then how come God made your life so hard? Certainly, the real gospel from an infinite God would be accompanied by obvious blessing. You see, Paul, of course, uh, went through some hard stuff in his ministry. He had been shipwrecked. He had been beaten. He had been imprisoned. He also had some sort of difficult physical malady that he called his thorn. I mean, Paul had been through it, folks. And so Paul was a man whose ministry was marked by suffering. And Paul's opponents here in 2 Corinthians were trying to pick him apart. And they were, uh, they were looking for signs of his legitimacy as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel, in things that looked like worldly success. They were looking for Mr. Smiling Preacher Joel Osteen. Someone smiley and nice and pleasant and good-looking who would say the things that they were wanting to hear and making them feel good. And uh, I'm sorry, but Paul was not that guy. Paul's response to them in 2 Corinthians, contrary to what they were looking for, is this. My suffering as an apostle is the very means God uses to reveal himself. My suffering as an apostle, your suffering as a believer, the ways in which your life is broken may be the very means God uses to reveal himself genuinely to people who need to know him. Do not miss that. Because it's part of the guarantee that the communication of the gospel is intact. If you communicate the gospel based on your own goodness, your own fitness, your own, your own ability to live up to, to the things that you think are supposed to be the standards, you'll communicate you. You'll communicate your story in a way that does not keep the gospel intact. Paul's defense was way different than they expected. His defense went a different direction altogether than they were thinking. Our defense of the gospel doesn't necessarily involve answering the world's objections, the world's ways. We cannot miss this because it's fundamental in how we communicate the gospel. Our defense of the gospel and of Jesus doesn't necessarily involve answering the world's objections, the world's ways. It involves answering all their problems and all their objections in real, real terms, but not on their terms. So, 2 Corinthians 3, 1-3, let's read through that passage together. It says this, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? This is Paul speaking to his opponents. Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Verse 2, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Look at verse 1 there. Paul asks two rhetorical questions, both of which expect a negative answer. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You see, before, before our modern days of, of, of email and online resumes and, and, and phone calls for references, people had to carry with themselves letters of recommendation. So Paul is using that terminology of the day. We still carry passports and things like that uh, for the same reasons. Back in Paul's day, uh, Jewish travelers would carry what was called a letter of recommendation. And they showed that Jewish households in other cities to which they were traveling could trust them and could give them lodging in that other city. In, that other city. in other words, these, uh, these sort of letters of recommendation said, I'm a good Jew, you can trust me, I'm the real deal. Now we do the same thing. This isn't something that's new. It's been going on for centuries and centuries, and, and we do the same kind of thing. If you've been around Greene County any period of time, you hear people say things like, I'm a Chucky Wilhoit. <laughs> and people know what family you're from. You can say, I'm a South Green Birdwell, and everybody knows where you're from. If you've been here for 10 years, you've heard those kinds of statements. Um, I have had to do things like this myself to show my Christian church pedigree if I've needed to because somebody didn't exactly believe that I was safe for them. I did the same kinds of things. I would say, I was baptized by Myron Taylor at Westwood Hills Christian Church. And people, oh, Myron Taylor. <laughs> That's how it works. That's how it works. Um, you, you can also say, I sat under so-and-so and that legitimizes that you know where you're coming from theologically and that you're safe and that you're okay. We do those kinds of things constantly. Um, I occasionally have had to say, my dad taught at Lincoln, Great Lakes, PCC, Milligan. And unless you know what I'm talking about, you don't know what I'm talking about. See how that works? <laughs> Clear as mud? <laughs> You can uh, use that when you need to. I sat under Scott Wakefield, and people say, <laughs> it's already been tried, apparently. Uh, the, the problem with this is that it sets up external measures, external measures of one's trustworthiness that don't necessarily have anything to do with the internal work of God to regenerate life in ways that bear fruit. And Paul knows this. Look at verse 1 again. That's why he answers no to these questions. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? No. Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation? No. I love Paul because he's actually being pretty sarcastic here. He is saying, I don't need to defend myself yet again about, uh, about these claims from my opponents and from their misunderstandings. Instead, he says, and this is the beautiful part, verse 2, he says this, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. We don't need to answer in their terms. We don't have to justify ourselves to them because they don't yet get the full implications of the gospel of grace. Paul is saying, we don't need no stinking badges. If you're writing notes in your Bible. You can just circle that and put, we don't need no stinking badges. <laughs> Verse 2. 
He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation. That's huge. These people who were attacking Paul's ministry, you're a little early. These people who were attacking Paul's ministry and ultimately his version of the gospel he was proclaiming were themselves the vindication of Paul's ministry. People themselves functioned to legitimize the gospel and the message of Christ as trustworthy. People are walking testimonies witnessing to the power of God. Now, don't confuse this with our self-righteous penchant to say, See, I told you that it's really about whether or not I live up to your model of perfection. No. To be a letter of recommendation, to be a minister of the new covenant and of reconciliation is to demonstrate and to tell the work of God in our life in a particular kind of way. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Paul is saying our own hearts testify to this because we have seen not your sufficiency, but God at work in you. God's sufficiency in you is the witness that we see. Look at verse 3. He expands this thought by saying, You show... Your lives show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Now, instead of having to write the commandments of God on stone, like in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God, when He came, He shows He's a living God because His laws are inscribed on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 says this. It's a, it's a great passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now get this, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Here's a great way to say it from Ezekiel 11 here. It says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The proof that Paul was the real deal was not to be found in written letters, but in the evidence of God in the lives of the people to whom he ministered and proclaimed the gospel. They were the defense of the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians 4 5 for uh, just a second here. It says this. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We do not proclaim ourselves and our fitness and our correct answers we simply proclaim what we know Christ has done for us. Make that distinction because it's got to be clear for how we communicate the gospel. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7-12 for just a second. This is why we talk about brokenness right here. 
He says this, keep this in mind, but, he's saying, keep this in mind, but we have this treasure, that is, the gospel treasure, the priceless truth of reconciliation with God. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's in a breakable form. Our bodies are earthenware. They're vessels and they break. I don't have to tell you this. You know this. Many of you struggled to get here physically today because your bodies are breaking. We know that we're jars of clay. And the reason that we're jars of clay, look at verse 7 again. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are jars of clay for the purpose of showing that the power to defeat sin is not found in a person's goodness or our fitness or our correct words or our right doctrine or going to the right church or manufactured self-confidence. We are jars of clay broken to show that God is the one whose power makes us whole. That's why we can say that the rest of uh, that, those verses 8 to 12, we are afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, not destroyed. Because we carry in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. Take the pressure off, friends. You don't have to know everything. Knowing everything, demonstrating your own goodness, might just be the prideful way you communicate the gospel in terms that make people after your image instead of the image of God. What this means is that your defense of the gospel is your own brokenness. Paul is telling us how to write the story of our own reconciliation with God in terms that admit our fallenness and our inability and our shortcomings for the purpose that we can talk about His adequacy and His majesty and His power to defeat sin through Christ. We get it so backward as if someone else's ability to clearly hear the gospel depends on my goodness. Tell it like it actually is. You don't make yourself whole, and you can't. Tell it like it is. God did this, not you. And that is what makes your story plausible. We're going to call up the band and we're going to uh, sing a song in just a second here. It's called Let Your Kingdom Come. And it, and, and it has these lyrics as one of the verses that speak to uh, this truth about who we are as people to communicate the gospel. It says, give us your strength, O God. Give us the courage to speak it says, perform your wondrous deeds through those who are weak. It said, Lord, use us as you want, whatever the task. And then it closes with this line. It says, by grace, by grace we'll preach 
your gospel till our dying breath. Not by our goodness, our adequacy, our right answers, but by grace. Friends, may our lives, may our lives be letters and songs and stories, not that tell of our goodness, but that tell of our brokenness, pieced together by grace. Then we will communicate and defend the gospel. We're going to sing this song as uh, we do. If you're looking for a church home as a baptized believer, we'd like to invite you forward and, uh, and welcome you into the body of Christ here at First Christian. Or if you'd like to uh, publicly declare your faith in Christ and uh, be a part of this congregation in being baptized, uh, we'd ask that you'd come forward as we stand and as we sing.